Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Three weeks ago, I summarized Paul's words in verses 8 through 12. So I want to repeat that again and get us up to speed before we get into verses 20 through 23. So real briefly, in verses 8 through 12, where Paul begins the thought that he's going to finish today, he said, in my own words, don't be taken captive by false teachers. He's writing to the Colossians. I've heard there's false teachers among you. Don't be taken captive by their false teaching. Don't listen to their philosophy that promises to fill you because in the end it will leave you empty and you're already full. This is the point he is making. Don't be taken captive. Don't listen to this false teaching that promises to fill you because it's not going to fill you. And because you don't need to be filled. Because you're already full in Christ. And then he goes on after verse 12 and verses 13 through 15 to describe how we are full in Christ as we are united to Him. Our sins are forgiven. Our debt that we owe God has been nailed to the cross. And our enemy has been defeated. So all of our great problems have been taken care of. What about our enemy? Defeated. What about our debt? Paid. What about our sin? Forgiven. How? Because you're in Christ. United to Christ. So you're full in Christ. So, based on that, verses 16 through 19, don't let these false teachers pass judgment on you. And don't let them try to disqualify you. In other words, don't be intimidated by them. Don't let these false teachers judge you. And don't let them try and disqualify you. Don't let them intimidate you with all of their teaching and all of their good illustrations and all of the history they have and their accomplishments and reputation and education and degrees. Don't let that intimidate you. So watch out, Paul is saying. And then today, in verses 20 through 23, not so much an instruction that Paul gives the Colossians, but he asks them a rhetorical question. And it is a rhetorical question that is aimed at driving home the reality of the Colossians' fullness in Christ. So we're not surprised by that because that is what Paul is clearly trying to do here. Colossians, quit sniffing around for something else. You've got everything you need in Christ. Don't fall for this. You've got everything you need in Christ. Don't look for something more. You have everything you need in Christ. And don't be intimidated specifically now. Don't be intimidated by these smart, eloquent teachers. Because what they're teaching you is it's false. It's wrong. It's not helpful. So Today we'll look at Paul's rhetorical question. Before I preach this sermon, let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for more time to read Your Word together. 
and more time to study Your Word together because we know that Your Word is Your revelation to us. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't know You apart from Your Word. And we know that our faith has come and our belief has come. Our, our loving and relying on You has come because of Your Word. As Romans 10.17 says, faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the Word of God. So thank You, God, that we get to hear again what we heard for the first time a long time ago. And it changed us literally forever. And we pray that we would be changed again by Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we'll finish up chapter 2. You see, verse 23 is the last verse of chapter 2. And we should realize as we finish up chapter 2 that in verses 16 through 23, so if you look at that section, in verses 16 through 23, uh, we have gained a pretty good understanding, if we're paying attention, we've gained a pretty good understanding of the empty Colossian philosophy that promised fullness. We get a pretty good idea of what the Colossian heresy or heresies were if we pay close attention to what Paul says in verses 16 through 23. And this morning, I think that we would be really, really wise if we would acknowledge that these kinds of Christ-demoting teachings have not gone away. So, when we read about what was taking place in Colossae 2,000 years ago, resist the temptation to detach ourselves from it and think, well, that was then, this is now. We don't struggle like that anymore. We've moved beyond that. Thank goodness that we've matured to the point where we're not susceptible to that anymore. Thank God we're not like those weak-willed Colossians. 21st century. We've read a lot more books than them. got a lot more Scripture than they had. And clearly, we don't have the problems that they had. There's a temptation to think that when you, when you read Paul's letters to different churches. To think, how could they do that? How could they fall for that? So, we need to draw some parallels today and, and, and see how the root of what, what these men were teaching or the, 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 the foundation, the wrong foundation that they were standing on, that there are still men standing on those foundations today. And it may not sound exactly the same, but it is the same uh, Christless, Christ-demoting message and what you find is it's true today and it was true then that the problem isn't just a problem that's outside of church where it's easier to spot, but it's inside churches. Right? Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the churches. He's writing to the church at Colossae. Okay? When he's writing to Roman Christians and churches. He's writing to the Christians in Galatia. He's writing to the churches in Thessalonica and Ephesus and in Corinth. 
he's writing to those churches and saying, there is teaching that is among you that, that it has the label Christian teaching. That's the genre that it claims to be under. Christian teaching. And so Paul has got to write and say, that's not Christian teaching. So when we, when we warn today about that, that's not some new thing where it's popular to just bag on Christian teaching and, 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 and alert you to all the poisons that are out there today in the name of Christianity. That's not just some new thing. I mean, that's been going on for a long time. A long time. And we, we today, just like you had to then, you got to be careful. We have to be discerning. And so th- this is going to help us, I think. This text Paul has here is going to help us to do that. So here's Paul's question. Let's look at verse 20. He asks a rhetorical question here. So rhetorical. He's not looking for information. It's a rhetorical question. He's trying to make the Colossians think. He wants them to ask themselves this question. It's rhetorical. And he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? What on earth are you doing? What he's saying. Let's break that up. First, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, with Christ you died. There's that union with Christ language again that we've seen in Paul. With Christ you died. Romans 6 5. We remember we Christians have been united with him in a death like His, and we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So we have died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. This is this union with Christ that we have. That Paul is reminding us of. And so all of the benefits of the life and death of Jesus Christ flow to the Christian. It means to be united to Christ. All the benefits of His life and death and resurrection, all those benefits flow to those who are united to Jesus. So if you're united to Christ, all those blessings, you have them. Not you get them or someday, but you have them right now in Christ. Paul says, if... You have that union with Christ. You have died with Christ. Then why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? You have died, he said, to the elemental spirits of the world. The same word that Paul used if you look up in verse 8 of chapter 2. You see that same phrase. It's really just one word, one Greek word that means the basic principles of this world or the fundamental principles of pagan religion, which all is, of course, ultimately demonically inspired. So you, you died to that. The elemental principles and spirits of the world. You don't think anymore like you did long ago. 
you're not caught up in these sort of elementary, basic, worldly philosophies. Things like, if you're good, you'll go to heaven. That's an elementary spirit principle of this world. There's a basic principle of pagan religion. It's wrong and false. We hear it all the time today. It's not biblical. That'd be a modern example. Or what goes around comes around. It's worldly. It's not biblical. Like everyone is born morally neutral. That's not true, but it's predominantly believed today. Like the pursuit of happiness can exclude God. Or the pursuit of happiness should exclude God. These are worldly, pagan principles. And you don't get them from the Bible. So Paul is saying, Colossians, you're dead to that. You're dead to that kind of thinking. Why are you listening to this? You don't think like that anymore. So, why are you listening? He goes on. Why? Here's his question. As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? What kind of regulations? And Paul explains in verse 21. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. So collapse all that and listen to Paul's question. You are dead to these worldly principles and philosophies. So why, as if you weren't dead to them and still alive to them, why are you submitting yourself to this teaching that's based on human precepts and teachings, not biblical, not from God, and then why are you submitting to the the imperatives that follow these worldly indicatives? Why are you submitting yourself to the regulations that come along with this teaching? Why? He wants them to think about that. What is the appeal of this garbage? You are acting like you are still alive in the world. Why would you return to bondage? Why would you return to the powers of this world to which you were once enslaved? Matthew Henry said, the Apostle requires Christians to stand fast in the liberty with which Christ hath made them free and not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Why are you doing this, Colossians? Well, why? Why are they falling for this teaching? What is the appeal of this teaching? It'd be good for us to answer that question, but we don't want to fall for that teaching. So, so why? Well, maybe they were stupid. That'd be an easy out for us, because none of us are. Maybe they just didn't have the degree of intelligence 
poor Colossians. They just didn't have the degree of intelligence necessary to spot how insane this teaching is. And so they just got lemmings here just going along. Sure. We'll submit ourselves to bondage again. So maybe they're just weak-willed, weak-minded. I don't think that's the case. And I know you don't either. Maybe the Colossians were not Christians. Maybe the Colossians were just not mature Christians. I don't think that's the answer. Or maybe, maybe, why, why? Maybe there is something about worldly wisdom and regulations that our flesh finds really attractive. We might be helped to just take our guard down and not distance ourselves from the Colossians where we can't learn something and actually identify with them and admit that, well, you know what? There is something really attractive about worldly wisdom and worldly regulations and rules. There is something that my flesh... In my sin, my sinful nature still finds really attractive and appealing. And so if I'm not careful, that would mean, if I'm not careful, I can do exactly what the Colossians were about to do. And I can listen to this stuff, and I can believe this stuff, and I can submit to this stuff, and I can get pretty far down that road, and maybe not even know what hit me. So this is why we need to understand and we're thankful that Paul helps us, what this false teaching was, what it was rooted in. We'd understand it so that we can watch out for it. So we can identify this false teaching today and say, oh, I know that, and that does. That sounds good. But it's not true. So let's look more closely at the Colossian heresy. And I see, and others have seen here, four at least tracks of teaching within this Colossian heresy at least four different tracks of teaching and here are the four and then we'll look at them one at a time human wisdom legalism mysticism and asceticism what are those what was it in Colossae? What does it look like today? Human wisdom, legalism, mysticism, asceticism. Because Paul is saying, don't listen to that. Don't be taken captive by that. Don't be judged by that. Don't be disqualified by that. His words, don't submit to that. What Paul is telling the Colossians is stand firm and do not be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by this. So, number one, human wisdom. I think the first thing that we see is Jesus plus 
human wisdom. So we don't necessarily hear that the Colossian teachers were denying Christ. Which is sort of how the foot got in the door. Because maybe the Christians, if they heard that Christ was clearly and explicitly being denied, then okay, we're done. We don't want to take your class. We don't want to subscribe to your podcast. We don't want anything to do with this. But that wasn't necessarily happening explicitly. So it's Jesus. Okay, that's fine. That's good. We love Jesus. But, Jesus plus now, if you really want to be mature, if you really want to be a super Christian, if you really want to make sure that you're saved and sanctified, first thing, Jesus plus human wisdom. We see that in verse 8. Philosophy that was what? According to human tradition. And in our verse today, verse 22, according to human precepts and teaching. So Paul is talking about human wisdom. And Paul would say, and we would say, before human wisdom, whatever that is, we would encourage you, know the Bible. Know Scripture. What is the most important thing for a Christian to know? Is it human precepts and teaching? Is it human wisdom? Is it worldly wisdom? Is it the instruction that comes from this world? And the answer is no. That's not the most important thing a Christian needs to know. A Christian needs to know Christ, and a Christian knows Christ primarily through the Bible. Now you can know God in other ways. And you can know God through what theologians have called natural revelation. And that is true. You can watch the sunrise and the sunset and you can learn something about God. But you're not going to learn enough. Where do we really learn about God and Jesus? In His Word. So Christians need to know the Bible. And we need to know the Bible more than philosophy and history and culture and political science. And we're not saying it's bad to know these things or to know about these things, but primarily, you see, primarily a Christian needs to know the Bible. You want to study philosophy? Great. But make sure you know your Bible. If you want to study history, great. I love history. But make sure you know your Bible. You want to study political science? That's great. Know political science. But do you know your Bible? And you may be today, or you've gone through this, you may be intimidated by others who know more about these other subjects than you do. Have you ever felt like that? Oh, you're just a Bible thumper. You're just always coming back to me with Scripture. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. And all you want to talk about is the Bible. Sometimes people can make you feel stupid 
for that. All you know is the Bible. Well, listen, that is not much of a put-down. It's really not. Don't feel bad about that. All you know is the Bible. Thank you? But don't be intimidated by that. Christians need to know the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean that we have blinders on, and it doesn't mean that we just live in our little cave and we board up the windows and we detach ourselves completely from society and just live in our Christian bubble and we're not please don't hear me saying any of those things. And please don't hear me say that there aren't good things to know outside of the Bible. Don't don't hear me say that. That wouldn't be true. But what do you know most? What, what do you pursue to know the most? And here's another important question. Through what do you look as you study everything else? What's the lens that you look through as you study science and you study politics and you study history and you study mathematics and you what is the lens that you look through and the answer should be God's word these are my lenses and i take all gladly all the presuppositions that i'm going to have when i get into that classroom because of reading the bible that's fine You're right. I totally have tons of presuppositions when I sit in your class and you teach me. And I'm confident in my presuppositions because I got them from God's Word. And He's a much more qualified teacher than any teacher you're ever going to have. And you're going to have teachers who are going to themselves submit to God's Word. But you're going to have many teachers who are not going to submit to God's Word. And they're not going to encourage you to look through the lens of Scripture. But what do you need to do? You need to look through the lens of Scripture. I have found that even many Christian, and I'm sure some of you have too, that many Christian educational institutions have bought into this, I think. And they major in knowing all of this and they minor in knowing this. And that's not how it should be. Christians should always be encouraged to, that's fine, minor in all of this, but make sure you major in this. And as you minor in all of this, keep your biblical lenses on. So here is this false teaching in Colossae and the same thing that can happen today that says, don't you know about this and about this and about this and you don't know your history and you don't know that and you don't know what's happening here and the tests that have been done and the things that have been proven and the trials and the trials and the trials and how can you ignore? And here you are just saying, well, I just know that Scripture says this. There's nothing wrong with that. And be confident in that. Don't be. What is Paul telling the Colossians? Don't. Be intimidated 
and put your Bible down to try to gain the respect of these who don't believe in the Bible. Okay, so human wisdom. Human wisdom was part of the Colossian heresy. Number two, legalism. Legalism. So, Jesus plus legalism. Here's the definition of legalism. A philosophy by which one depends on the observance of laws in order to be saved. If you think of legalism like that, when you think of this Colossian heresy, a philosophy by which one depends on observing laws and rules and regulations, and by my observing these laws and rules and regulations, by doing that, I'm saved, or I'm justified, or I'm maturing as a Christian. So I need these laws and rules and regulations. And I impress them on myself, and then I find myself impressing them on others because they're so important. I only feel saved by doing these things. I only feel like I'm growing in Christ by doing these things. That's legalism. Verse 20 and 21 is what Paul is talking about. Why submit to, what did he call them? Regulations. And then he quotes them. Apparently this was a phrase that was going on amongst the false teachers. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Da, da, da. Not the da, da, da. That's what I hear. Don't do this. Don't do that. No, no, Christian. Stay away from this. That's okay. That's not okay. Don't you have the list? Have you not seen the list? My goodness. Here's the list. These are the things you cannot ever do again. And this is the list of things that you can do. Liberty? No. No. Liberty. Bondage, my friend. Bondage. Probably don't sell it like that. That wouldn't get very far. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus human achievement. Jesus plus man-made rules. This is behavior modification. This is just I'm saved by these outward things that I do. This was the Pharisees' problem. Therefore, Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. What a thing to call someone. I mean, Jesus was the supreme name-caller. Right to the heart. You bunch of whitewashed tombs. You just picture them like, what, what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> and figuring it out when they went home. Hey, wait a minute. Because he explains it, doesn't he? What's the deal with a whitewashed tomb? How does it look on the outside? How does it look on the inside? On the outside, it looks great. This is what legalism tends to. I follow the laws, I follow the rules, I follow the regulations. So the outside of the cup is very, very shiny. Inside of the cup, filthy. Filthy. A neglected heart, a neglected soul, a neglected mind. But everything on the outside looks really good. You can easily train kids up to be little Pharisees, right? We can parents, we can easily get caught up in that. Oh, just, just, just act 
better. Please. We can get to the point where we just stop investing in their soul and say, you know what, just at least act like a Christian. It would make my life so much easier. At least just act like a Christian. And if you do, I'll give you candy. I'll give you candy. Do you want a toy? Do you want that toy? Don't embarrass me at church this morning. What are you doing? We're just modifying. Oh, I can do that. Yes, Mom. Yes, Dad. What a cute little whitewashed tomb. But what's on the inside? What's on the inside with the Pharisees? Dead bones. Rotting. Decaying. That's what legalism leads to. There's lots of problems with that. Anyone can clean up the outside and appear spiritual. Isn't that a big problem with legalism? Well, anyone can white-knuckle that, can clean up the outside and appear spiritual. As well, there are, you pay attention to just the external and not the internal. I mean, my goodness, there are bigger problems, aren't there? There are bigger problems. What about the problems within? What about sin? What about the heart? But Christians can do this. We can have extra-biblical rules and regulations, things that we expect people to do or not do in order to be a Christian. And when we don't see those things, we make a judgment. Cigarette, not a Christian. Is that a beer? Not a Christian. Democrat? Well, maybe. I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Public school? Not a Christian. NIV? The message? Are you kidding me? Not a Christian. Vegan? Not a Christian. Raiders fan? Not a Christian. There are bigger things to worry about, right? Much bigger things to worry about. Problems of the heart that get neglected in legalistic cultures where everybody looks good on the outside but sin isn't dealt with. What about greed in the heart? I wish some, as John MacArthur says, and that there are a lot of, of John MacArthur haters out there, and so maybe this will be helpful. I wish some, as John MacArthur says, would trade in their gossip for a can of beer. End quote. What does legalism tend to? I'm just going to externally look like everything is squared away and neglect my soul. This was part of the teaching of these false teachers in Colossae. Paul says, watch out. Stay away from it. Third thing, mysticism. Mysticism. Jesus plus mysticism. Here's the definition for mysticism. A higher, as I think it works here in Colossae, a higher level of Christianity that is gained through some sort of personal spiritual 
experience. It's mysticism. So they were in Colossae advocating not only Jesus plus human wisdom, and if you have that, then you'll really be a Christian, or Jesus plus legalism and some extra rules, and if you have that, you'll really be a Christian, but also Jesus plus these. Well, have you had these higher level, spiritual, personal experiences? And if you haven't had those, then you're not a real Christian or a growing Christian. You should pursue these things. You should go after these things. Verse 18 describes it as the worship of angels. And what was the false teacher doing? He was going on in detail, Paul said, about visions. And so you may hear people say things like, and maybe you've been intimidated in these kinds of contexts, you're not really a Christian until you've spoken in tongues. Until you've had visions. Until you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Until you've given or received a prophetic word. Until you've seen miracles. Until you've seen the voice of God. Until you've seen Jesus. Some of you who come from charismatic backgrounds have experienced that. Because not all charismatics deal with that well. And some of you have been intimidated and made to feel inferior while everyone around you was having dramatic, personal, spiritual experiences. I've been really intimidated by that. And I've really in the past felt like an inferior Christian because of that. Where's my dream? Where's my vision? Why can't I do this? And why haven't I seen that? And, and why don't I in the past? Why don't I hear God's voice? And this guy just told me that Jesus came in his dorm room last night and put his arm around him. Why doesn't Jesus do that with me? And I can wonder and be intimidated that maybe I'm an inferior Christian and maybe there's some elite level of Christianity that I haven't attained to yet. And that was one of the things that these false teachers were promoting. What, you don't talk to angels? You don't worship angels? What, going on and on about visions they're having? What, you don't have these visions? And we can be made to feel inferior. Or you can be made to feel like you're missing out on something as a Christian. Or you're quenching the Holy Spirit if you don't have these dramatic experiences. But what I've learned, what I've learned is sometimes in the promotion of all of these higher experiences, what intentionally or unintentionally is done is that the primary and most spectacular work of the Holy Spirit just gets downgraded. If I start to feel like I'm quenching the Holy Spirit or like I'm missing out on the ministry of the Holy Spirit because I don't have these experiences, well, Christian, do you know that the Holy Spirit shone light into the darkness of your heart? Do you know that the Holy Spirit is the one who awakened you? Who spiritually resurrected you? 
Do you know that it is the Holy Spirit who, when you need to be comforted, is your literal comforter and literally mediates the presence, the very presence of Jesus Christ within you to comfort you? The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts you of sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates God's Word. This is the primary work of the Holy Spirit. This is the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. But you can be intimidated as they were in Colossae. And you can hear people around you talking about, oh my goodness, and this and that, and then God thundered through and spoke to me and I heard His voice and it was clear as day and then I saw this vision at the foot of my bed and then worshipped the next night. And, my, and you're sitting there going, I'm just trying to understand what this page in the Bible says. I'm just, I'm just trying to get caught up on laundry and keep pee cleaned up off the toilet seat. Just my ordinary life day in and day out. And you hear about these dramatic experiences and you can be made to feel like you're missing out. So questioning your salvation. Maybe I don't have the Holy Spirit. Maybe... No. It was one of the things that Paul was fighting there and it's one of the things that we have to fight here to push back. Now I am Christ and He is mine. To understand that, friends, the, the ordinary, boring, if you want to use that word, Christian life is where God gets all the glory. You don't need these dramatic experiences. You need to have a normal, bad day. And in all things, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. And God at the end of the day is supremely glorified. That is the great work that each and every one of you Christians does. That is the calling that is on each and every one of us. Oh, I wish I was called to this, or I wish I did that, or I wish I had these great abilities, or I wish I could do this, or I, I thought my church would be this size by now, or I thought my family's songs would be sung, and I'd be praised as a mother and father everywhere that I went, and I thought I'd be CEO by now, and I thought I'd have this platform to do great things for God. And friends, the great thing you do for God is to glorify Him in the ordinary day-to-day -day providences that He brings you. Don't be restless in that. Be thankful in that. So human wisdom, no. Jesus. Legalism, no. Jesus. Mysticism, no. Jesus. And then finally, number four, asceticism. Asceticism. This was Jesus plus self-denial. You see it in verse 18. You see it in verse... 23, asceticism is this punishing of the body and denying the body in order to achieve some sort of higher spirituality. It was popular then, it can be popular now. 
It's the idea that the only true spiritual people are like monks and nuns who go and live in monasteries. Or a contemporary version of this would be that real Christians give up everything and live in poverty. That is not true and it is not necessary. If God calls you to that, that's fine. But God does not call all Christians to give up everything they have and live a life of poverty. That's asceticism, modern day asceticism, which reads the story of the rich young ruler and totally misunderstands and misapplies that. Ascetics in history were a very interesting group of people. I'll just tell you a few things about them. They felt the body because it could experience pleasure was evil, so they denied it everything, including bathing. Many of them would brag about not taking baths. Some monks considered it a sin to take a bath. One monk named Anthony the Athanasius talks about was apparently praised because he never in his life changed his vest or took a bath. Simeon Stylitus, some of you have heard of him, was praised because as he walked, rodents fell off his body. <laughs> that is gross. C.S. Lewis said simply, there is no reason to suffer without purpose. There is no reason to suffer without purpose. We don't pursue suffering. Self-denial is good and certainly biblical, but not to achieve salvation. And it is true that giving up your money is relatively easy compared to giving up your sin. And then verse 23, here is the ground of what Paul has just said. He's drawn out this false teaching. He's warned us about it. Now here's the ground. Here's why he says, hey, don't follow this. Why are you falling for it? Another point he makes, verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Some of those things are attractive. How do you give the appearance of wisdom, he says, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. So these are all things that you can do. And you can, if you like control, you can feel in control. Control of your maturity. Control of your salvation. If you're a legalist, the, the very attractive thing about legalism, which I fall prey to often, is that I can, if I do these good things... I will be saved. God loves me because I do these good things. And so at the end of the day, I can pat myself on the back. And there's a little bit of my salvation that I can own. And sinfully, I kind of like that. Kind of like thinking that I'm in heaven because it has something to do with me. At least a little bit. I'm a pretty good guy. I don't know if you saw what I just did, but it was pretty great. And that would make sense. It would follow that I would be in heaven. I mean, I do. I, wa I want to think like that. I want to pat myself on the back. I want to praise myself. I want others to praise me. So there's appeal. I'm a self-made man. You're a self-made woman. There's an appeal there. It promotes self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But here's the point. They are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So friends, all of this man-centered teaching, it's all man-made. 
It's not God-inspired. It will focus our gaze on earth and not on Jesus, whether I'm looking to human wisdom, whether I'm looking to rules and regulations. Where do you struggle? Whether I'm looking to some higher spiritual experience, whether I'm looking to some sort of rigorous self-denial that makes me feel better than others because of what I give up. Whatever it is that we fall prey to, it takes our gaze off of Christ and it puts our gaze on this earth. We need to be careful because modern even evangelicalism often has an unbalanced focus on the body and on the external. We are taught and we know how to be beautiful people superficially and how to perform externally, but what about how to in our souls be devoted to Jesus Christ? One study was done and the study said that Americans spend an average, men and women, of 41 minutes getting their bodies ready for the day every morning. I know some of you are probably much more or much less. But the average American spends 41 minutes getting their bodies ready for the day. The question is, how much time do we spend getting our souls ready for the day? Where's our focus? In conclusion, and I am borrowing these from a teacher, Sinclair Ferguson. I thought this was really helpful for me and I hope it will be helpful for you when we consider false teachers and false teaching and, and weeding through that. And you may be thinking, okay, I know my church and I love my church and I trust my church, but there is a lot of other stuff out there. I've got friends who are listening to a lot of other stuff and there's a lot of persuasive teaching and books and and how do I help myself? How do I help others? Well, here are three questions for all of us to ask whenever you hear a powerful teacher. So not necessarily a good teacher or a true teacher or a right teacher. This is what these questions help flesh out. But what do you do? Three questions to ask when you hear a powerful teacher. I thought these were very helpful. Number one, when you hear the teaching, who is being exalted? That's number one. You hear powerful teaching. Wow, that was motivating. That was good. Make sure you ask these questions. Number one, who is being exalted? Who is being exalted in this Colossian false teaching? It's the false teacher. He is puffed up, it says. And so he fixes you on himself. He obscures the glory of of the Lord Jesus Christ from you. When you hear powerful teaching, ask yourself, who is big here? And really, what's the impression that you leave with? Oftentimes, it will be the preacher. It will be the teacher. It won't be Christ. Number two, what is the effect of the teaching? What do you find in your own soul? What is the effect of this teaching? You see the false teacher in Colossae, he's puffed up, but it's not doing anyone else any good. The church is not 
being built up. This false teacher apparently dominates and domineers the congregation, but he doesn't nourish the congregation. He doesn't nourish the people. So what is the effect of the teaching that you heard? Does it just get you excited? There are many times where I've listened to teaching and I felt very excited afterward, but then when I really examined, there was really no good or lasting effect from the teaching. I didn't even know what I was excited about. I'm just excited. And third question, I found this most helpful. When you listen to a powerful teacher, ask yourself, what is not being said? What is not being said? Listen to this Colossian teacher. Consider, what is he not saying? Because he is saying a lot of things. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's talking about the traditions of their forefathers. He's saying a lot of things that sounded true and were reasonable and sounded good. But when you hear powerful teaching, pay attention. What is not being said? Often what is said is true, but there's something vital missing. What about the Gospel? I think this question is most helpful because I think this is one of the big issues today. Lots of teaching that sounds really good and has lots of verses, but in the end, it's void of the Gospel. Where's Christ? Where's His work on the cross? Where's our dependence on Him? There can be teaching where you hear 99 true things. But if you don't hear the one and most important thing in the teaching consistently, that is the Gospel, saved by Christ alone, then it is false teaching. Let me say that again. I'm not saying that just take a, a paragraph, take a sermon, take a chapter, and I didn't hear the Gospel there, it's false teaching. I'm talking about you're listening to a teacher, you're knowing a teacher, you're reading a book, you look at the whole book. What we're saying is you can, it doesn't matter how many true things are said, if the Gospel is not there, it's false teaching. So if you have ministry where there's a lot of true things, but the Gospel isn't there, then it's false teaching. If you have a teacher that says a lot of good things, but the Gospel isn't there, then it's false teaching. If you have a book, that says a lot of true things and claims to be for the good of your soul, but it lacks the Gospel, it is false teaching. So ask, does this teaching enable me to overcome sin or simply to disguise it? Ask, does this teaching enslave me to people or the person teaching and does this teaching focus on man-made regulations rather than the glory and honor of Christ? We need to be on our guard and to be cautious and careful when we hear different teaching and to test it 
with the Word of God and to test it with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word and for Your teaching. God, we pray that You would give us increasing discernment as we live in a world that is full of uh, teaching that is not true and is not helpful, doesn't bring You glory. So if we ask that You would fill us with Your Spirit in a way that we can weed through all of that and discern what is true and what is false. Help us in this, we pray. For Jesus' sake and in His name, Amen. So we come to the part of our service when we, as a church family, take communion together. So to remind you today what it is that we do when we share this meal together in eating a bit of bread together and drinking a bit of juice together as Christians, we are remembering as Jesus commanded us to remember, we're remembering the way of our salvation. And we are remembering that the way of our salvation was through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Very much like the family celebrating Passover in the Old Testament. And you remember part of celebrating Passover. You remember that night when they spread blood on the doorpost. And they were not judged. They were passed over. And they were saved that night. And they could look to the blood and know that it was by the blood that we were saved. Of course, that blood was pointing forward to the blood of Jesus Christ that we as Christians now look to and claim as the means of our salvation. But what do we look to today to remember? What is our symbol today? Well, it's this time of communion where we eat this bread and we drink this juice and we remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ through which we are saved. So when you're ready, you've thought a minute about what it is that you're doing today, leaders will be up here and we'll serve you like every week and return to your seat and we'll take it together.